Welcome to the Experience Darden Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to feature a conversation I recently recorded with Mike Lennox. Mike is the Taylor Murphy Professor of Business Administration, as well as a Senior Associate Dean and Chief Strategy Officer at the Darden School of Business. He and I recently sat down to talk a little bit more about what brought him to Darden, uh, what he enjoys about teaching here, uh, some of his research passions and interests, including sustainability and green innovation, as well as his advice for prospective students. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Mike Lennox. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brett. Thank you for having me. All right. So we start the same way every time. Uh, tell us a little bit more about you. Who are you and, and what do you do? I am Michael Lennox. I'm a faculty member here. I've joined Darden back in 2008. Uh, I teach uh, strategy primarily, though I do a lot in the space of innovation, digital transformation, and, and also sustainability. And I also serve as the senior associate dean and chief strategy officer for the school. So a full plate. <laughs> yes. Yes. So... Um, what brought you to Darden? And Darden has this reputation of, of being a place where people really love to teach. Was that attractive to you? Uh, absolutely. It was actually one of the primary motivators for me. Uh, I was at another school, uh, very well established there, um, wasn't really looking for a move. And then the opportunity of Darden came about. And I had been kind of keeping an eye on Darden for many years. And uh, Darden's a special place. And you kind of know that from afar, um, but really come to appreciate it since being here. Um, it is a place that truly values teaching. Uh, it's in the DNA. It's in the norms that we have as a faculty, as a school. Um, and sadly, that is not always the case at other institutions, even amongst our, our peer school set. Um, and so I, I enjoy it a place that really embraces the arguably the primary mission of the university and the school. So um – what classes are you teaching? So for almost 20 years now, I've taught some version of kind of first-year strategy for uh, for the MBA program, and I continue to do that, and, and I will do it as long as they let me do that. Um, but I'm also teaching a new elective this year called Strategy in the Digital Age. So it's kind of a follow-up to the core strategy course, taking a very specific lens to what we're increasingly calling digital transformation. And so thinking through how this confluence of technologies uh, – AI, machine learning, Internet of Things, blockchain, you can kind of go down the list, are uh, transforming business and, and, again, putting a strategy lens on it. So how is this changing business models? How is this changing um, the nature of competition in different industries? What do you enjoy about teaching first-year students? Um, I think the energy. Um, I love the section setup that we have at Darden. I have been a Section B loyalist now going on, I guess, 12 years now. Um, and uh, there are certain cultures that develop in each of the sections, certain uh, traditions that they have. And it just creates this kind of um, just really energizing experience, hopefully for the students, but, but also for the faculty. Yeah, I'm struck by how they have their own culture, subculture, I guess. Yeah. Um, B, the birds. Yes, uh, they exactly. have these orange T-shirts that they wear. That's right. And there's the bird itself that, you know, travels around the world, in fact, and goes to weddings and goes to, you know, historical sites and uh, been on top of mountains. So, wow. Um, and uh, sections set their own norms, which is kind of a cool thing. It's yeah. an opportunity for student leadership, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. I think it fits very much in the UVA tradition of student self-governance here. Um, 
and I really love the attitude that we adopt here that you, the students, own the learning experience. It's for you to understand that you're collectively better off if students show up on time, if people aren't trying to hog the conversation. Um, how you engage in that classroom environment is going to determine the learning environment you have, and, and you need to own that. It's not just for the faculty to kind of set the rules of the road. Yeah, I, I, subtle, but it seems important, you know, the faculty come to the classroom, right? The right. students stay and stay stay in the same same classroom. It's kind of their space right. uh, during that first year. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I, I think you know it fits into a, this broader UVA tradition. Something I'm very passionate about at UVA is the honor system. And I think less appreciated sometimes from afar about UVA's honor system is that it's student run. And what that means is at the end of the day, it's the students are setting the norms for integrity and classroom conduct. Um, collectively and enforcing them. It's not, again, the faculty imposing that on the students. So there's, again, this sense of collective ownership that the students have in the experience. So Darden has, obviously, a first-year curriculum that's that's very well known. Um, and, I, you know, obviously, there's a core curriculum, and I think how you progress through all this is it's understandable. You get to the second year, yeah. and, and we've had some conversations on the podcast about, you know, with second-year students about what they're doing, and you get a lot of different answers yeah. back. I mean, it's extracurricular, people doing different things in the elective space. How do you think about the second year? How do you, you know, how do you encourage the school to think about it, given your strategy role? Yeah, I mean, I think the first year, obviously, is this incredible experience. Very lockstep. You know, students are in the same room for, you know, first three uh, quarters at the very least. Um, a very regimented approach. You know, you have three classes a day, typically three cases a day. You're 8 a.m., you're 10 a.m., you're 11.45 a.m. Then you get to the second year and, and suddenly all those constraints are removed and you have a lot more discretion and choice. And so I, I view it as the time of exploration. So just give you another course that I've done, I've done for years, is a second year seminar uh, called the Mead Seminar after a, a very famous undergraduate professor who was very inspirational for me, uh, Boots Mead, Ernest Mead. Uh, in that seminar, we explore topics near and far. We do a lot of policy discussions. We also discuss the arts and humanities. We'll talk about science issues. And the whole philosophy of the course is to be a leader in the world, to be a leader who's impactful and effective, you need to be at the very least conversant on issues. You have to feel comfortable engaging in the public uh, discussion and debates. And unfortunately, I don't think we do enough of that these days in, in society, in the U.S. in particular. Um, but I, I just love the opportunity to kind of, in many ways, I'm learning alongside with the students. So I think when I think of that second year, it's it's, an, it's that time for exploration. It's a deeper dives in certain topics. It's exploring topics you maybe never thought you would look into. Uh, it's maybe adventuring outside of Darden even and taking a course at the law school or uh, the Batten School of Policy or maybe even a you know, an engineering course, if you're daring. Um, and, I, and I think that's, that's a great opportunity for a lot of students. Um, the MBA might be the last degree they receive. And uh, education is a wonderful opportunity. You know, take advantage of it, right? I know the students are focused on getting that next job, but uh, recognize this is, this is an opportunity you will probably not have in your life again to spend this concerted time learning and exploring. Yeah, big picture thinking. Uh, prospective students, 
invariably ask us about concentrations and specializations. <laughs> and I think part of that is uh, the market kind of sets that expectation. Right. Um, and then we come back with this answer that I think maybe feels a little bit loose to them. It's like, well, you know, we talked to our current students and they might back into a specialization, right? They took a bunch of classes and they kind of equaled yeah. uh, a, a concentration or specialization. But that wasn't really the driver for most of our students. No. And in many ways, the faculty were resistant to adopting concentrations in the first point because it's kind of somewhat anti antithetical to the educational viewpoint that we have. I think there's a market reality that we uh, you know, acquiesce to on that. Um, and, and I think in many ways when students, prospective students are considering schools, um, I think sometimes they give too much weight to that. You know, uh, I'm very interested in sustainability, for example. And we, in fact, do have a sustainability concentration. Uh, many of our peer schools do as well. Um, in most cases, that means it's a handful of courses that are being offered on the topic and, and you can get those other, where, uh, other places as well. So labeling it a concentration at the end of the day is, is useful from a resume standpoint. Um, but I don't know if it signals anything that special other than you have a collection of courses available to you. You're right about the philosophical point. I, you know, I think Darden is so much about making people facile thinkers and flexible thinkers yeah. and it's very much broad foundation and being able to kind of look at any kind of problem and, and have a perspective. At least that's uh, – I say this as somebody who's only been proximate, proximate <laughs> to the experience. I haven't gone through it myself. Well, no. I think especially as teaching strategy, I, I try to hit this point home you know, over and over again. You know, part of your MBA experience, of course, is learning a, a, a set of very uh, specific tools and analyses that you're going to need to do. Um, but those are really step one. You know, if you've done a wonderful spreadsheet and you've got a wonderful result at the end of it, you know, that's step one. Because the next thing you're going to be done is going to have questions about your analysis. You're going to have questions about the assumptions you made. You know, they want to know the intuition behind what you're doing. Uh, They want to know how maybe outside forces might impact this. Um, If you're not able to kind of think on your feet and think holistically and broadly, as we say, an enterprise-wide perspective, I don't care what profession you're in. If you're you're an investment banker or a consultant or working, you know, for Google in Silicon Valley, uh, you've got to have that broad perspective if you're going to be successful. And, you know, getting back to what we're saying on the second year, that second year experience, again, is an opportunity um, to be a business leader, right? It's not just about a deep dive into kind of one or two topics there. Um, I, I find that the people who are most successful in the long run have what I call an integrative capability. They're able to take uh, in situations typically of high uncertainty and limited information what knowledge has available to them and pull it together in a way to make a cohesive answer or cohesive response to the question at hand there. Um, that That's not always you know, being able to crank the spreadsheet the best, right? It, it's Again, it's a kind of a higher level order that takes um, – all of your skills and kind of brings them together. I would think teaching strategy is a, a fun class to lead because it's really interdisciplinary in that way. You got to think about a lot of different, yeah. different things. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I really do enjoy teaching strategy. Um, we get to talk a lot, a lot of fun companies that, you know, people are interested in kind of uh, naturally there. I think the challenge sometimes is to get people to do the deeper level of analysis and thinking. You know, I always say to students, your experience with a product or service is not probably the best way to judge a strategy of a company just because you you love your iPhone is not a sophisticated analysis of Apple uh, at the end of the day. So, you know, we, we hope that they kind of dive a little deeper, but we do like to do course, uh, cases that they uh, have companies and products and things they're familiar with. So one of the many reasons why I was excited to have you on the podcast is we get a lot of prospective students. I think this is a time 
uh, where people considering an MBA program, they have much more on their mind than just a job and a salary. You know, they, it's values, it's mm-hmm. you know, impact, it's you know, doing good with this you know, with this incredible education. Um, and one of the things that's obviously on people's minds uh, these days is sustainability yeah. and sort of in a, in a time of a great discussion around climate change, climate crisis, depending on how you choose to define it. And I know this work is is very important to you too. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, really from the beginning of my you know doctoral studies and through my time as an academic. I've been interested in sustainability environment. I've been interested in so long. We didn't even call it sustainability when I when I started. It was more just kind of environmental management uh, at the time. Um, you know, these issues are critically important. And when I think about the power of business, the ability of business leaders to affect positive change in the world, it's one of the things again that attracted me to Darden is that it is a place that I think thinks about business in the right way, encourages and inspires our students to think about it as a powerful you know uh, uh, lever for change in the world. World. Um, when it comes to something like climate change, you know, this is an issue that no business can avoid at this point. This is going to be something that we're going to be dealing with in the rest of my lifetime and probably, you know, lifetimes to come, uh, unfortunately. Um, it creates uh, business risk. It creates business opportunities. Um, but you've got to be sophisticated about it. You know, this isn't politics. This isn't, you know, advocacy. This is just reality. And it's reality that, you know, smart companies understand and are, are trying to get out ahead of. I was able to attend an event that we did very early in, in Darden, sort of build out in, in D.C. It was at uh, Sands Capital Management, uh, had representatives from a few companies, uh, a lobbying group as well. And it was about the sort of transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, how companies might be thinking about, gosh, well, the EPA now has different yeah. leadership. Uh, what do you do uh, when the, obviously, agenda of, of the administration changes? And I was struck by two a person, the company said, we're not really thinking in four-year cycles. We're not really thinking in eight-year cycles. We're thinking like 25. I mean, green is obviously the direction that this is all going. No, that's right. And I think, you know, companies are often making uh, capital investments in the lake that far outstrip any administration. And so they have to be smart and sophisticated about those investments and have a long-term perspective if they're going to be successful. I think the other thing that's been interesting that's changed a lot, I would say, in the last couple years is that um, CEOs and companies can't stand on the sidelines anymore. Um, I think it used to be, and, and used to be like just even five years ago, there was an expectation, of course, for companies to address issues that were directly within their operational sphere, you know, when they had emissions, let's say, or had some environmental impact. Increasingly, you know, the general public is, is demanding that companies take stances more broadly. Um, you know, how do you feel about climate change? What do you think should be done, not only within your company, but, you know, in the political sphere? Um, and in many ways, it's a, it's a fraught ground for a lot of uh, leaders now because, again, you're always risking that you might, you know, offend some while you're trying to please others. And uh, again, being neutral doesn't seem to be an option for many companies anymore. Well, you look at, I mean, there's plenty of recent examples. Some companies have always had it as part of, you know, Patagonia, for example. I think I got an email directly from them uh, on the back of all of the youth climate you know, yeah. movement protest uh, that happened over the, the past week or so, yeah. the past yeah. couple of weeks. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, one of the things that I, we also hear from prospective students, um, and this 
there's a little bit, I guess I'd say adjacent to your work, um, is so much interest around sustainable supply chain Mm -hmm. and this kind of idea of like, because I think it affects every, I mean, you're thinking holistically about a business, every person um, that that business might touch from the worker to the environment, all all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's often the case that um, you, you have a certain, let's say, environmental footprint or impact from your own operations. But for many industries, for many businesses, it's that supply chain that is really going to be driving your your environmental footprint. And again, you know, companies have learned that you have to think through that entire uh, supply chain. You know, back in the '90s, uh, when Nike was getting criticism for labor practices in their uh, um, in their contracted facilities, you know, their first response was, "Oh, they're not ours, right? You know, these are our contractors. You know, we just buy from them. You know, that that doesn't cut it, right? And, uh, and and so companies know they have to manage their supply chain. They have to understand the impacts along that supply chain. And they also recognize that there's there's opportunities there. Um, you know, Anheuser-Busch InBev uh, recently uh, is, is decarbonizing basically their production. And, and in part, um, not only is it kind of the right thing to do, but also it's a part of de-risking the you know prices of fossil fuels that they would have to be dealing with and the fact that solar and wind prices now have come down so far to the point that they are, in some instances, uh, the low-cost option. Um, it's just good business too. So – um, you know, looking for those win-win opportunities is, is key to being successful. So you also have a, a strategy role in the broader Darden yeah. enterprise. Um, what do you enjoy about that work? I mean, obviously, you're teaching, you're researching, doing all this kind of well, stuff. I, I'm, I'm very appreciative to Dean Beersley to give me the opportunity to, to serve in this role. I'm the first chief strategy officer for the school and, and, you know, in many ways asking me to apply what I've been teaching for many years uh, uh, to the school enterprise. And, um you know, I am fascinated. I've actually, you know, blogged quite a bit about the higher ed enterprise, as if you will, and as an industry, uh, and an industry that is potentially under disruption. And so, I think um, when you look at universities more broadly, there's a whole set of forces that are arguably causing a disruption in higher ed. Business schools, in particular, I think, are on the leading edge of that um, for a variety of reasons. We're very international. We're very global. Um, we feel pressures that maybe certain schools don't feel that aren't as global. Um, and we have a constituency in the corporations we send our students to the uh, corporations we have as a clients in our executive education like that uh, demand, you know, the most forward thinking and the most innovative practices. Um, so be it online education to the way we find and recruit students to the role of data and analytics in our decision-making processes, um, we tend to be on kind of the leading edge. And, and that's a fun place to be uh, and, and a lot of interesting projects going on in the school to try to kind of move us forward in those domains. What would you want a prospective student to know about this experience? Uh, we touched on a lot here in this conversation, but what yeah. would you share? I think, you know, the things we talk about, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating, one of the things that makes my job easy as chief strategy officer is I think amongst our peers, we are probably the school that best understands who we are and can define what our distinctive advantage is. And so I'm going to say the things that the students always hear, but I think are important. You know, we are a rich, arguably number one educational experience with dedicated teaching faculty who believe in engagement not only in the classroom but outside the classroom. And that is incredibly, incredibly important to your experience. Um, it is a welcoming, friendly place. We're constructive. It's not a hyper-competitive place that we have hyper-competitive individuals, I would say, but we work together. Uh, and it creates this dynamic, energizing 
you know, experience in the classroom and outside that I, I really don't think is replicated in, in our peers. And I've been to many. I've been on the faculty of many and, and visit all the time. And um, Darden, is, Darden is special. Um, I think the challenge for a lot of prospective students is, you know, we're the ultimate experience good, right? You got to come. You got you to see the magic in the classroom. You got to understand, you know, what, what we're doing uh, and, and, and view it to really fully appreciate it. And I think that's why our alumni are our biggest advocates. They, they've been through it. They understand it. They understand it's a transformational experience. And um, again, I think it's something that you don't see actually amongst many of our, our peers, not to the degree that we that we see. Well, we certainly feel passionate about you know experiencing the case method, coming sit in on a class, uh, spending time in Charlottesville. Yeah. Uh, for many of our prospective students, uh, Charlottesville is kind of an unknown. They yeah. don't know too much about it, and you know, spend a day or two. And yeah, and I have to say, I, I, I'm, I'm a big advocate for Charlottesville. It's it is this little slice of heaven here in Virginia, Central Virginia. Um, it has amenities that I think uh, a, a town its size should not have. You know, I lived in New York for a while, and I like to say, you know, pound for pound, our restaurants seen, you know, can hold up to Manhattan. It's clearly a, a small size compared to like the Manhattan restaurant scene. But again, on a per capita basis, it's actually quite, quite robust. Our music scene far outstrips, you know, the size of our, of our town. And then you add in uh, kind of the, the growth in wineries and breweries and the outdoors with the, you know, Shenandoah National Park right here on our doorstep in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, it's just a, it's just a very special place to be. Yeah, I always think about the role that Charlottesville plays in just the community dynamic here. You yeah. know, the fact that everybody's relocating for their MBA program. I mean, a handful of people might be here, or, you know, have gone yeah. uh, to UVA uh, in the past few years and, and are returning back and know people in the area. But most people don't know anybody here. And yeah, and I think that's, you know, when students are thinking about schools, that's a really important thing to, to understand that dynamic. I, I have taught um, at urban universities, um, and what I would observe is they often are very transactional. Um, students will have lives outside of the school. They maybe have lived in the city before they decide to join that program. Um, so they come and they take classes and they go home, um, which is fine if that's what you want. Here, yeah, as you said, everybody's coming to move here to, you know, join the Darden school. So everyone is in a similar kind of experience here. Um, and while you, if you need to get away, you absolutely can. And there's like, again, wonderful opportunities to explore the area. This tight community is something that you really don't see unless you're moving to a college town like a, like a Charlottesville. Well, one of the things that I think is sometimes mysterious to prospective students is the case method. Yeah. Um, people, I, I've had, had office hours in Philadelphia not so long ago, and, and, and both candidates really asked me, so what is it? Yeah. Uh, you know, you read online, and you know, obviously a lot of different takes on it. How would you explain it to a prospective student? You know, it's funny. I, I did engineering as an undergrad, and uh, I was a good student, but I would fall asleep in class. You know, you'd fall, sit back there, and you listen to the professor lecture and drone on. Um, the case method at one level is just, again, this energizing moment where you are there, you're participating, you're in the moment. One of the joys, I've always taught case method. Other schools that I've taught at, I taught case method. But Darden, it's a holistic experience. And, and that comes to fruition in a couple different ways. One, our students know how to actually prepare and participate in a case discussion and how that really works at its highest level. And the highest level we talk as a faculty 
um, you know, we could almost ask a question and leave the room. And then an hour and a half later, you know, this robust discussion takes place. It's not quite that simple. But it's this idea, again, of what we call student-centered learning. That's the key, is that you're learning from one another. You're challenging one another. I begin every single one of my case discussions with the decision that's in the case. I actually begin with that. I ask, you know, almost always a cold call, you know, what would you do in this situation? That um, exercise of being forced repeatedly to state your opinion, justify it with analysis, argue it in front of peers, take the slings and arrows of the questions they ask for you. You cannot ask for a better set of experiences to set you up in the real world. Um, I actually do a lot with um, online uh, work. I have a bunch of Coursera courses. Um, and I always say these are these are complementary goods. These aren't substitutes for one another. Very different experiences. But I do believe strongly that if you're going to pay to go see someone lecture to you in a classroom, you know, get your money back because stick a camera on that person, put them online. You know, you don't need to be sitting there watching someone talk to you. Um, that's a that's a waste of your time, a waste of your money. So you need to have some type of engaging experience in the classroom to justify being there in the first place. Um, um, and, and that's what we do. That's, that's what our DNA. And the, the case method in many ways is a catch-all for, for student-centered learning. And most of the time it is a case, a written case. But it really is many different forms of kind of experiential Socratic style uh, learning. That, that's the heart of it. It's the heart of being forced to answer questions. It's being forced to state your opinion. It's being forced to justify that. It's being out there and being you know potentially criticized by others who are critiquing your analysis that's the heart of the experience. And like I said, if you're even a quiet, reserved person, you know, give it a consideration because this is the way you're going to train yourself and improve yourself is being put in that, that crucible every day uh, in the Darwin classroom. So Ron Wilcox was gracious enough to come on the Exec MBA podcast, and I got to talk to him a little bit about what it's like to write a case. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, what's that experience like for you? Do you, you enjoy that? I do, because in some ways, um, I, I actually tend to be more of a uh, quantitative researcher in terms of like I do, you know, large end studies of, of various phenomenon and run regression analysis and the like. But to do that well, you, you need to understand the context. You need to have some deeper understanding of like how the world works. And so at the end of the day, when you're writing cases, it gives you that opportunity to kind of dive deeper into a company or an industry, talk with some people within there, talk to the CEO or talk to some leaders there. Um, you know, I mentioned this class that I'm doing on strategy in the digital age. You know, there are so many interesting industries and cases now of companies dealing with digital disruption or digital transformation. Again, you know, machine learning, AI are advancing so quickly. Um, it's almost hard to keep up. But case writing is actually one of the ways we do that. One of the ways we stay current and on uh, on the cutting edge is kind of understanding like, oh, yes, here's a company who's doing something very interesting that I just recently was visiting and learning about. Um, and then we can bring that into the classroom to kind of keep things, you know, keep things fresh and keep things moving along. So what are you working on right now that's exciting Exciting to you? Um, well, on the case writing side, we're actually doing a case on Amazon HQ2 uh, and their location in northern Virginia. Um, and we're framing it actually from Amazon's perspective. Uh, and one of the things that I've long been interested in uh, is what we call affectionately non-market strategy, which everyone in this area kind of agrees is a terrible name. But what it refers to is basically all the other things you have to think about as a business beyond your usual kind of 
customers, suppliers, you know, competitors. We're talking government policy, local officials, regulation, activist actions, community organizations, you know, all of those other institutional players and how do they influence how you behave as an organization. Um, if you look at a company like Amazon, there's obviously a lot of really interesting kind of core business issues they're dealing with. But a lot of what, you know, they're really dealing with these days are policy issues. They're licensed to operate, the critiques about antitrust they're going to be facing, locating HQ2, what happened in New York City where they said they were going and then they pulled out for a variety of reasons. Um, those are critical questions for every company to deal with, especially tech companies these days. So I'm excited that this is going to be a case we're going to use to really start to unpack some of those, again, non-market issues that Amazon is facing. Well, I know you would have some some readers for that in the Northern Virginia area. I don't think a, a day goes by without some mention of HQ2. They're starting to have some of their job fair days. And, Absolutely. Uh, uh, needless to say, people are, are turning out in yeah. droves. A lot, still a lot of energy about it. Yeah. One of the areas I've been doing research is on the emergence of entrepreneurial ecosystems and innovation districts and the like. So uh, everyone is watching this one to see how it turns out and what, what grows up around it as much as anything. Well, yeah, I think that's a, I think it's a great point. I, I think it does have the potential. I mean, it's certainly, you know, New York's take on it was, okay, well, we're a city of 8 million people. What's, yeah. you know, 25,000 jobs? Or, I mean, it's nice, but, you know, we're a very big, big city here. Uh, for D.C., it does have potentially a really transformational effect. I mean, you think about it being a quote-unquote company town. I mean, Amazon, obviously, AWS, very much tied into, you know, maybe supporting a uh, public sector in, in various different ways. But think about the kind of people they might look to hire, um, the talent they might attract does potentially have that. And I think it's really interesting to look at what Arlington did as they approached it compared to what New York City. I mean, New York City really gave them a bunch of tax breaks, and that's what got everyone upset. You know, why are you giving, in essence, tax breaks to this large company? Uh, Arlington had a very different approach. So there was about building infrastructure around HQ2 to give them support educationally, transportation, lifestyle, you know, um, which, you know, when you think about it is build out those complementary assets. It helps Amazon, but it also just helps the region and it's going to attract other businesses. Um, so I'm, I'm very bullish on, you know, how this will, this will play out over the next, you know, five, 10 years. And you look at the real estate that they chose. <laughs> yes. uh, Crystal City, arguably, um, um, underutilized section yeah. of, of of the Washington D.C. metro. Um, you know, it's mostly known for the airport and yeah. uh, kind of a concrete jungle over there. And it's going to be very interesting to see how having that anchor there um, will transform some of the development. I was actually very surprised at first when Arlington was getting attraction for that very reason, because if you thought about the old Crystal City, it was not the type of thing you would think Amazon would be interested in. It was you know traditional bunch of office buildings where at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. they'd empty out and they would be dead, you know, in the in the evenings. But I think what Amazon recognized was, one, that narrative had already begun to change. There was already an area in transition. And then, two, their scale can actually be the catalyst to transform it into a vibrant, you know, commercial, residential, um, uh, retail hub uh, in and of itself. And its location is, you know, is about as, as rich and, you know, 
uh, location as you could get in terms of the amenities and close to the airport and close to downtown DC. So I think they, you know, they're smart and they uh, they did a good job thinking about how they could build that type of environment that they want. I will say, you know, the the other thing I'm interested in from a research standpoint that's going to be fascinating too is is also important to recognize other winners and losers in these types of developments and. Um, you know, uh, gentrification and displacement. And so that's another thing I'm kind of studying now is trying to understand some of those dynamics as well. And obviously a major story in D.C. just generally. I yeah. mean, uh, most cities on the East Coast, uh, this is uh, this sort of wealth and what it's doing, sort of the city, you know, think about as people move back in, causes, you know, a certain amount of disruption. And I mean, this is a real real existential question in D.C. right now. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, there's a connection between my interest in these evolving kind of entrepreneurial ecosystems or innovation ecosystems and my interest in kind of digital transformation and disruption and industry evolution in general. Uh, in fact, they often are married very close together. You know, if you think about Detroit. You know, Detroit uh, 100 years ago was the Silicon Valley of the United States. It was the energy of the country as people flowed into Detroit to build out this new nascent disruptive industry called the automobile industry. Um, we've seen that play out in communities, you know, repeatedly. Uh, I grew up right outside of uh, Trenton, New Jersey, which at one point in time was a thriving entrepreneurial, innovative uh, town and city and, and unfortunately uh, has not been for, for quite a bit of time. And so on a personal level but intellectual level, I'm very interested in how these industries and cities arise and evolve and how it impacts the lives of those who, who live there. Now, those are both great great examples. I think anybody who's been on the Northeast Regional Train, yeah. uh, Trenton makes the world world take right, so. which has become unfortunately you know somewhat of a joke uh, compared. But there was some truth in it, you know, eighty Absolutely. years ago or so. And I had the good fortune of going to uh, Detroit on a baseball trip, and uh-huh. when you're there. I mean, the, the scale of the city. I mean, incredible. These long boulevards just stretching on. I mean, clearly a city that was de- designed, you know, by people who had a love of car- cars. <laughs> I don't know how to navigate it. But um, but also you get the impression that it was one of the wealthiest cities in America for, for a long, long time. And you just think about the, the communal wealth that the auto industry brought as, you know, everybody in America had to have a car just because of how cities developed here. Yeah. The good news is there's a lot of these uh, kind of, past industrial cities that have maybe fallen on harder times that are starting to turn it around. I mean, Pittsburgh is probably the primary example of a city that has just transformed itself over the last couple decades and now is a center of robotics and autonomy and uh, just very different than the old steel town that uh, that it used to be. Um, Charlottesville, obviously more of a kind of a, a smaller um, college town, but, you know, we are a thriving entrepreneurial city at this point and recognized as, you know, the number one venture growth uh, community in the country. Uh, recognized as one of the top five places to start a new business. So um, it's fascinating to see these, you know, everyone talks about Silicon Valley, but these other nodes that are starting to emerge now. Well, it's a great point about Charlottesville. I mean, so the Catalyst program that yeah. has been announced is obviously a regional yeah. accelerator. Um, VPX, which is Batten Institute just announced, we're yeah. going to have uh, David Tuvey and Jason Brewster on the podcast Excellent. to talk about both of those things. Um, I really love talking with both of them because they have such passion for the for the work that they, they've done. Yeah. And one of the things that the Entrepreneurship and Venture Capital Club uh, reps came when they were on the podcast last year, uh, what they said was, look, you know, okay, Charlottesville, the scale of the entrepreneurial community may not be what it is in some much larger cities. 
but I can meet with that person That's right. like right now if right. I, or, or tomorrow. They, have, they are available. They're accessible to me. And that is incredible. Yeah, it's a tight community. It's small enough that you kind of know the major players and they know each other. And um, entrepreneurship at the end of the day is about networking, right? It's about connections, about finding capital, but finding talent, finding mentorship. Um, and Charlottesville is a, a wonderful place to do that. And it helps, again, that it is this kind of very high quality of life. So um, we've had quite a few people kind of relocate from you know Silicon Valley to here uh, to start businesses because it's, uh, again, a high quality of life and uh, a, a rich enough ecosystem that it can support the, the growth of ventures. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. It's been Absolutely. great. Obviously, uh, you know, thanks for all the work that you do for the school, and um, we'll have to get you back on here a little bit later to talk uh, about what it may, what it's like to teach maybe that Amazon case. Sounds good. So, thanks for right. having me, Brett. And that was my conversation with Mike Lennox, Taylor Murphy, Professor of Business Administration, as well as Senior Associate Dean and Chief Strategy Officer here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the pod, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. And until next time, thanks for listening.